Kia ora. you're listening to an Auckland Libraries podcast. Welcome to the Heritage Talks podcast, bringing you the best in local and family history from Aotearoa New Zealand, the Pacific and beyond. Your heritage now. No mai, haere mai. Family historian Iris Taylor takes us through a brief history of New Zealand nursing up to the First World War. Iris also covers the death of 10 New Zealand nurses when the Marquette was struck by a torpedo in the RGNC. She recounts her pilgrimage in September 2015 to remember these New Zealand nurses and visit the Greek island of Lemnos, where the third Australian field hospital was set up to take casualties from Gallipoli. Well, first I'll explain I'm not a nurse and I have never been a nurse. But my sister was, and she encouraged me to go on a trip with her. And the result of that is the talk and a little bit about the trip we did in 2015. So the main topic is the New Zealand Army Nursing Service and the sinking of the Marquette during World War I. 2015 was the centenary year for the Royal New Zealand Nursing Corps. It now operates across the three services, the Army, the Navy, and the Air Force, and is sponsored by the New Zealand Army. Princess Anne is the Colonel-in-Chief. When the South African War, the Boer War of 1899 to 1902 started, New Zealand offered to send New Zealand trained nurses, and the offer was initially refused. However, with pressure from the public, nurses and government. Six nurses eventually left for South Africa in March 1900. These nurses were in fact the forerunners of the New Zealand Army Nursing Service. They were not issued with a distinctive uniform and their wages were paid by public transcription. Things don't change, do they? As there was no independent nursing body in New Zealand, the six nurses were attached to the Princess Christian's Army Nursing Service, it being the forerunner of the Queen Alexandra's Imperial Military Nursing Service. Princess Christian was the daughter of Queen Victoria and Prince Albert. Other New Zealand nurses served in South Africa, but made their way there independently and served in private units. In 1902, New Zealand passed the Nurses Registration Act, it being the first in the world to do so. This did not occur in Australia till World War I. In 1906, the New Zealand Defence Act of 1886 was amended to create a New Zealand Medical Corps and have a field hospital in each military district. No provision, however, was made for female nurses. By 1908, the Defence Act was further amended to include regulations which authorised the formation of the New Zealand Medical Corps, the nursing reserve affiliated to the Royal Army Nursing Service. It was British. The Matron-in-Chief was responsible to the Director-General of Medical Services in New Zealand. In war, the reserve would be governed by the QAINS regulations as regards discipline and duties. There was no New Zealand control. Janet Gillies, Nee Speed, who had served in South Africa, became its matron in chief. New Zealand nurses were invited to apply to join this reserve. 
And one of them was Eva Brook, who after the outbreak of World War I was appointed second in charge of the nurses who sailed with the New Zealand Expeditionary Force to German Samoa in August 1914. The post of matron in the New Zealand Army Service followed in April 1915. And she was appointed the matron of the hospital ship Mahino and embarked for Turkey in July 1915. Also in 1908, the journal Kaikiaki, the New Zealand Trained Nurses Association journal, was first published. The founding editor was Hester McLean, who was the assistant, assistant inspector of hospitals for some years. This journal is still produced monthly. Friction rose between Gillies and McLean, and in July 1910, Gillies resigned. In 1910 also, Lord Kitchener arrived in New Zealand to discuss military organisations, including the Army Medical Service and the Nursing Service, which he was surprised to learn were not separate units in New Zealand. In August 1911, Hester McLean was appointed the matron in chief of a non-existent Army Nursing Service, although nurses could apply on the 3rd of August 1914, she had contacted Army headquarters to hasten the formation of the military nursing service should New Zealand troops be sent overseas to Europe. On the 6th of August 1914, she received a reply from the Director General Medical Services, which in part read, it is not intended to send nurses with expeditionary force and you will be doing us a great favour by letting this be known amongst your nurses, as much time is spent answering numerous applications which are coming in. However, at the outbreak of war, the New Zealand government was asked by the Imperial War Service to seize the German wireless station on Samoa and to secure the area. Consequently, on the 7th of August, McLean was asked to organise six nurses to travel and six nurses were sworn in at the Wellington barracks just a few hours before embarkation. Among their luggage for Samoa were two grey cotton frocks and a Panama hat, which obviously they would need. A seventh nurse joined them later on when transport called into Suva. They arrived in Samoa on the 29th of August with the medics and nurses taking over the hospital in Apia. By October 1914, 400 nurses had volunteered for service. However, apart from the group that went to Samoa, the authorities had decided no more nurses were required. This decision did not go down well. So in December 1914, a deputation, including McLean, met with James Allen, later Sir James, the Minister of Defence. He expressed appreciation of the work done by the nurses in New Zealand and elsewhere, but as the British War Office had not asked for New Zealand nurses, he felt it would be a presumption to send them. It was look as if we were interfering with imperial arrangements. Eventually a cable was sent to the Secretary of State in London with an offer of 50 nurses to assist with the war effort, serving British troops or the Red Cross, French Red Cross. Another cable was sent to the Australian Prime Minister requesting New Zealand nurses be considered for any Australian reinforcements that might be sent. 
The offer of 50 nurses was accepted by the British War Office. And by January 1915, the New Zealand Army Nursing Service came into being with the word reserve being deleted from the name. An individual offered to escort the nurses. However, this was challenged by McLean as the individual was not a nurse. McLean offered herself to escort. James Allen then checked her credentials and in finding she was a trained Australian nurse, but she had worked in New Zealand and he accepted her offer. On the 25th of March, 1915, a cable was received from Australia requesting 12 New Zealand nurses join the contingent for Egypt. They left New Zealand on the 31st of March for Melbourne. One of these nurses was a Hilda Steele. She was mentioned in the TV drama, Anzac Girls. And so she left New Zealand and went and joined the Australian group. And she remained with them until the end of the war. And those 12 nurses left on April, in April 1915. The Australian nurses uniform was by, made by David Jones and co. A black umbrella was presented to each nurse. Kilcardy and Staines of Wellington made the New Zealand uniforms. Interesting that J.B. Jones has now taken them over in Wellington. Later, with increased orders, DIC Wellington helped out. And in doing so, gave the nurses a sewing machine so they could make or finish the uniforms en route in the ship. The selection of the first 50 nurses to serve overseas was difficult, as many met the criteria, though being on a roll due to the Nurses Registration Act of 1901. Those selected sailed for Egypt on the Rotorua in April 1915. Wages were now being paid by the government. The nurses were part of the NZEF and served where required. Australian nurses were attached to their own military units and there were larger numbers. Both Australian and New Zealand nurses served or were seconded to other units like the British, the French and the Canadian. And we often forget the French and the Canadian were there too. The nursing service badge was designed by a New Zealand defence draftsman. He incorporated ideas from 150 designs originally that were submitted for the badge, but these were not deemed suitable. Does that sound like a flag problem we had a few years ago? The final design incorporated a crown, a silver fern and a red cross, similar to the one I'm wearing here, although this isn't a real one. This was used in the TV program, which I'll talk about later. The, uh, the re nurse's registration number was engraved on the back of the badge. It can be imagined working in a working environment was challenging with people coming from across century of cross group of backgrounds and professions. However, overall, New Zealand nurses were seen as skilled, adaptable, knowledgeable, competent, and in some cases, better by far than the doctors they had to work with. New Zealand outfitted two hospital ships during World War I, the Mahino and the Marama. The Mahino left Wellington on July 1915, followed by the Marama in December. A Papatoi nurse, Sister Elwyn Caruth sailed on the Miramar. Caruth Road in Papatoi is, is named after her family. 
Some Australian nurses were based in the number three annual general hospital on the windswept Greek island of Lemnos. Conditions were challenging and resources for the patients limited. Matron Grace Wilson fought for better conditions. In September 2015, my sister and I boarded a little ship called the MS Serenissimo on a commemorative, a commemorative cruise in honour of the Anzac nurses during World War I, and in particular the sinking of the ship TSS Marquette. There were 87 passengers on our little trip. Part of the commemoration, some of the passengers wore World War I nursing uniforms that had been donated by the TV company that had made the program Anzac Girls, which probably some of you saw. And we were proud to wear these uniforms and a little bit about them later. The TSS market was built in Glasgow in 1898, it being a single large screw steamer of 7,057 tonnes. Its original name was the SS Bodicea. She made regular voyages from London to New York. Following the purchase by the Atlantic Transport Line, it was renamed the SS Marquette and continued on regular savings across the Atlantic Ocean. When war broke out in August 1914, Antwerp, her new home, fell under German control. So she was requisitioned by the British to use as a transport vessel. Number one New Zealand hospital sailed and Number one New Zealand stationary hospital sailed from Wellington in July 1915 on board the hospital's ship Mahino and arrived in Port Said, Egypt. It was set up to receive Gallipoli casualties. General Godley had applied to have the number one NZ nurses transferred to the Greek island of Lemnos near Gallipoli, as I've mentioned, and he received no reply to his request. Early in October 1915, the staff were warned to prepare for imminent transfer, but the destination was not identified. Nursing staff were directed to take camp equipment and get warmer grey clothes. They left Port Said in Egypt by special train on the evening of the 18th of October 1915 and arrived in Alexandra at 3am the next morning. They embarked on the TSS Marquette by now a troop ship. The, it was equipped with X-ray plants and dynamos for electric lighting, and the whole group in 10, cents, in 10, 10, 10 tents were re-established in their still unknown destination. 36 New Zealand nurses led by Australian-born matron Mari Cameron who had worked for some years in New Zealand and was now a member of the New Zealand Army Nursing Corps. Making up the medical staff, NZMC under the command of Lieutenant Colonel D. McDavid were eight officers, nine NCOs, 77 orderlies. Three infantry soldiers also formed the party. Also on board came the 29th British Divisional Ammunition Column, the Royal Field Artillery comprising of 22 officers, 588 ranks, other ranks, 491 mules, and 50 horses, as well as all the ammunition. The departure from Alexandra on the 19th of October 
was not one of secrecy. The nurses lined the decks and sailors on nearby British and French warships cheered and waved and sang songs of God save the Queen and the La Marseillaise. As the ship was about to clear the protective harbour, the boom on the steering failed. Swinging around, the Marquette narrowly missed a minefield that had been planted at the entrance. A rag was found twisted around the piston rod. After a two-hour delay, the vessel continued. She had barely cleared the heads when smoke was seen coming from a large case that had been carried aboard at the last minute by men wearing Red Cross uniforms. Without hesitation, this was thrown over. Eight hours out of Alexandra, Captain Finlay, the Marquette's master of four years, opened his sealed orders. He was not to sail to Lemnos. He was to go to the Greek port of Thessalonica, of Salonica, which we now know as Thessalonica. On the evening of the 22nd of October, 1915, the French escort Trevelier, a destroyer under orders, left the convoy. These orders were later proved to be incorrect. The, native, the enemy had discovered the code set and sent a bogus message. This had actually come from the German U-boat number 135. Next morning, the 23rd of October, the Marquette was now in the Gulf of Salonika, so if you can imagine, Greece down that side and the Gulf of Salonika is just on this side. In contrast to the heat of Egypt, the weather was becoming cold and grey. You don't think of that around places like Turkey and Greece, but it was cold apparently. At about 9.15, a torpedo hit the vessel on the forward starboard side, smashed a gaping hole into the port side, Almost at once, the TSS Marquette listed to port. A short time later, she righted herself and began to sink. Bow first. Within 15 minutes, maybe less, the vehicle disappeared beneath the Aegean Sea. The German U-boat had fired the torpedo. In the attempts to release and load lifeboats, several passengers, including nurses, were killed or badly injured. The ship's radio had been affected by the torpedo strike. Only a weak SOS could be sent giving the ship's position. It gave the position of some 100 miles from Salonika. Ironically, this message was picked up by the British hospital ship Grant Tully Castle, now at anchor in Salonika Harbour. This vessel had sailed empty from Alexandra on the same day as the TSS Marquette. A second SOS signal was received, giving the position 50 miles different from the first message. And it was later established that the second message was false and again sent by that U-boat, number 35. Rescue ships from Salonika arrived at the false location, found nothing, finding nobody. They began sweeping in wider circles over several hours and eventually wreckage and some survivors were found in cold water and failing light. These survivors were eventually transferred from the destroyers to the British hospital ship Grant Tilly Castle and the French hospital ship Canada. These ships were staffed by British and Australian sisters. And the following morning, 15 nurses came aboard with a further 11 that afternoon. 
10 nurses were missing and presumed drowned. These nurses who died there were Mary Gorman, Nora Hildred, Mabel Jamison, Mary Ray, Lorna Rattray, Margaret Rogers, Marion Brown, Helena Estelle, Catherine Fox, and Isabel Clark. Among the deceased nurses, only the body of Margaret Rogers was identified by an engraving of her watch, and they also recovered her nursing badge. A second body was not identified, although it is now thought to be Helena Estelle. Both bodies were found in an upturned lifeboat with four deceased men. No identity discs were located. They were given a full Navy funeral and buried. 170 souls died in this tragedy. 10 were the nurses, 127 troops there, three infantry soldiers, as well as 29 crew, and all the mules and all the horses. Margaret Rogers is buried in the Micro-British Cemetery. The unidentified nurse is also buried there under known only to God. Today, this micro-memorial at the southern end of the cemetery commemorates almost 500 nurses, men and women of Commonwealth forces who died when troop ships and hospital ships were lost in the Mediterranean or the Aegean Sea and who have no known grave. In May 2019, a Greek diving team located the wreck and confirmed it was the Marquette. She rests in 87 metres of water off the Thermopylae Gulf in the northern Aegean Sea. The British Embassy in Greece ordered a protection order over the wreck. And in September 2015, a memorial service, which I'll tell you about later, and the release of a reef was held above the wreck to commemorate and honour the loss of these lives 100 years ago. Each year in October, there is a market commemoral service. And up till 2010, it was Christchurch earthquake, it was held at the Christchurch Hospital Nurses Memorial Chapel. Unfortunately, the chapel was damaged and is still, was still being prepared. The chapel had been built in 1927-28 and is architecturally a significant building with, with late Gothic revival structure and an arts and crafts movement. In October 2018, it was reopened again for its memorial service. So that's what the basic history is. As I mentioned earlier, in September, October 2019, my sister and I joined a group called In Wake of the Anzac Nurses. This tour had been put together by a lady called Claire Ashton, who comes from Hokitika, but is a tutor in Melbourne University. And she had dreamed of doing something like this to honor the nurses, because nobody ever had. And so we joined a group of 88, 87 people flying to Athens, going to a service at Phaleron, which is a Commonwealth war grave site. And then we boarded our little ship. We sailed up to 
Thessalonica to visit the micro cemetery. And we found the two graves of Margaret Rogers and the unknown nurse. On our trip was the great nephew of Margaret Rogers. So there were lots of tears around that time. Then we had a small service up where the plaques were, we remembered all the others. And it was interesting, obviously a lot of people had visited because there were poppies on lots of the names on these plaques. From there, we reboarded our ship to sail down to the spot where the market had gone down. The um, ship's crew had found a New Zealand flag and they had put that up for us. And so we had a very moving service there, which by the end of it, everybody, including the crew, were bawling their eyes out. Um, a wreath was laid by the granddaughter of one of the surviving nurses, Rosemary Peak. Grandmother Jeanette Sinclair survived the Marquette. Some of these nurses actually floated around for a few days before they were rescued. From here, we then went to the island of Lemnos, which was a couple of nights in the little ship. Lemnos was the site of the third Australian field hospital, which was the subject of the TV program, Anzac Nurses. It was envisaged that we would march up from the beach, as the Australian nurses had done originally, behind a piper to where the, the site of the hospital was. Unfortunately, we're not able to do that. The harbour master would not give permission. And his reason was good. This was a time when refugees were piling out to all the islands. Although I'm not sure how he would have thought we were refugees wearing these outfits. But nevertheless, that was what we had to do. So we were busting and then we marched up and the locals with the local mayor was there. And I think we had another moving ceremony, but a lot of it was in Greek, hands, hands going in all directions. But, you know, one of the things that, that had never happened, which was one of the things Claire wanted to do, was to thank the people of Lemnos. They suffered greatly during these wars and nobody had ever thanked them. After our visit and ceremony, we were hosted to a Greek lunch. As you can appreciate, Greek lunches go on for three or four hours. But stories were told by the various people on the trip, but also from the islanders themselves who had their own stories to tell about their ancestors who had lived through this time. From my own perspective, this was a very moving trip. I went because my sister was the nurse and I wasn't letting my little sister going all that way without her big sister going as well. After we left Lemnos, we then sailed to Kanakali in Turkey so that we could visit Gallipoli. I first visited Gallipoli in 1975 when it still looked like a battlefield, there were dirt tracks, there were bones sticking up, animals hopefully, bits of the machine guns and things they had used. Sadly to me today, it's more a tourist spot, but you still get that sad feeling that it was once a battlefield. From, oh, we had been asked before we left New Zealand, were there any places in Gallipoli we wanted to visit? And my husband had a um, great, great uncle, 
who did, was killed on the 25th of April, but who was injured on the 25th of April, but didn't die till the 2nd of June. And he was buried in the beach cemetery. So I suggested that was one place I'd like to go. It was also helpful that the Australian donkey man was buried in the same cemetery. So there was an added reason to go there. The cemeteries are very well kept. And in Beach Cemetery, he looks out onto the sea. So after a day in Gallipoli, we then boarded our ship again for the final trip up to Istanbul. In Istanbul, we visited on the Asian side, Florence Nightingale's museum. This was a very serious place to go for want of a better word. Before we left New Zealand, we had to submit our names, our information, basically everything about us to individually get permission to visit. And the reason for that was that it was in military barracks and the soldiers from these military barracks were the troops that were out along the Syrian border. There was no cameras allowed, no handbags, just us. But at the end, we got a good cup of tea and a sandwich. So from there, we were nearing the end of our tour. We went back to our hotel, talked about what we had seen. People had come from England, Australia, New Zealand on this trip. And I returned to New Zealand feeling I'd learned a lot. I'd seen things that I didn't want to see, even though it was 2015, and grateful that I'd been able to go with my sister and appreciate that nurses came back here with the same problems that the soldiers had of being depressed, of being nervous, of not getting back to civilian life at all. And I don't think we appreciate our nurses even today. So thank you for listening. Stay tuned for more tracks in this Heritage Talk series or visit the Auckland Library's website for other podcast tracks. Kia manawa ho. Enjoy.